All right, well, we're in our series, just message two, and you have an outline there, and uh, I'm just going to tell you, I don't know how far we're going to even get into that outline today. I'm kind of introducing this message today, so just be patient, and uh, hopefully you'll see where we're going. But we've started this series last week, The Church Defined, because I really believe that today people don't have a correct view of what the church is, and we don't have the authority to describe it or define it in our own terms, so therefore we turn to the Bible, the Word of God, to define it for us. And um, this is the second message in our, our series, and last week we looked at what is the church and why is it essential, and just a quick review, if you weren't here, we looked at basically three main points. First of all, we looked at the biblical definitions of the church. And we started out by saying to be committedly, uh, to be properly committed to the local church, you have to understand what it is. If you don't understand what it is, then you're not going to be committed to it. And so we defined what the universal church was is the world throughout the church throughout the whole world of those who have trusted Christ and have been saved ever since the day of Pentecost until He returns. That's the universal church. And then we defined the local church, and we defined it as such: the local church is a gathering of those who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and who are committed to meet regularly for worship, teaching, fellowship, and prayer, and who help make disciples of all people. That's the command that Christ gave us. And so those were the definitions of the church we used. And then we looked at the basic biblical model of the church, and we found it in Romans and Acts, and we basically talked about where the believers met and what day of the week they met on and uh, what they were devoted to, the teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread into prayer. And then thirdly, we pointed out that there's a biblical importance to the church. A lot of people say, well, what's the church? What does it matter whether you come out to church or you sit home and watch it on YouTube or whatever? Well, first of all, we looked at Christ's position in the church, that he is the head of the church. And he has already prescribed for us how we should meet and, and in what fashion and gave us that model throughout Scripture. So we don't have privilege to change that because we're not the head. We don't recreate the church in our own image like people do God today. We're not called to do that. Unfortunately, that's what a lot of churches do. So because of Christ's position, and then we said that Christ purchased the church. He purchased it with his own blood. That's why it's so important to us and to him. Uh, a lot of times, you know, people look at the church and they say, well, you know what, it's, it's just a mess. And a lot of churches are a mess because they're filled with sinners who are saved by God's grace. And whenever you got people, you got a mess, as far as my experience goes. It doesn't matter whether it's church or a business or a family, whatever. All right? So uh, Christ purchased the church. And then thirdly, we said that Christ calls us into the church, and he calls us to be one body. That doesn't mean that we um, compromise our views. There's a lot of churches today that, frankly, shouldn't be called a church. Because they're not called out from anything to anything. They're just there to um, fill their pews and their pockets and the hearts of the people with a merry, merry little message that sends them away, maybe smiling or feeling better about themselves. Um, I was watching a conference this past week down at uh, the Masters University and uh, my grandson goes and I was watching it online and, and one of the speakers was talking about 
the idea of you know this this scenario this this message we have in our society today. People say, "Well, just follow your heart." Did you hear that? Just follow your heart. You know, and and he said he was at a conference. The speaker said he was at a conference and he saw on a youth pastor's laptop a sticker. I think it was or on his briefcase or something, but it was a sticker and it said, "Follow your heart." Dot dot dot. Right to hell. See, that's the truth. That's the truth. Your heart is wicked, as mine is wicked. And the last thing we want to do is just follow our heart. But we want to follow God's call into what he calls us to be as the church. So today we want to look at the church called out from what to what. And we're going to be referring to several texts, and we're not going to really have a scripture reading as per se. Ken did that at the beginning of the service. But one of them, one of the texts I want you to look at is Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And like I said, we're not even in the notes yet. So just relax if you're a note taker and you're going, where's he at? Point one. We're not going to get to it today. I'm just telling you. So just ripple your uh, notes down there on that, on that piece of paper and you'll hopefully glean something by the time we, we get to our actual message. If we get to it today, we might end up preaching this next week. Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus himself, when he was dealing with Peter and the disciples, he said this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, that's not the Catholic Church, Peter's not the rock, Peter's a little stone, okay, that's what the original language says, Sorry, Catholic Church, you got it all wrong. I was raised in the Catholic Church, and for years I was taught that, oh, we're the only church, and it's on this, no, 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 it's wrong. That's erroneous. He says, I will tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In comparison to other terms, that word there, church, I will build my church, Jesus said. Ekklesia is the original Greek word. You've probably heard that. And it's, it's relatively neutral. It's, you might say, colorless in conveying by itself any theological uh, meaning. We think of church and we think of religion right away. Well, that's not so in the original language. It simply means called out one. It was used without a basic shift in its meaning by unbelievers as well as believers. The word church in the New Testament in the original language simply means a group or assembly of persons called together or called out for a particular purpose. Has no religious connotation whatsoever. There's no spiritual implications in the word itself. Now, in the New Testament, we see that ecclesia, that word for church, describes anything, anything that might be happening within a community that requires an assembly. Every Monday night in Redwood City, they have a town uh, council meeting, right? They're called there for that purpose. That's ecclesia. You could call that a church meeting. That's what it is. The assembly could be for social reasons. It could be for governmental reasons. Or it could be for religious purposes, as we're meeting here today as the church. But the word itself, it could be even whether you're meeting for legal purposes or illegal purposes. As we see in the New Testament, it sometimes refers to 
a group of believers, uh, uh, Christ followers, those who have committed their lives to Christ in the New Testament, and other times in the book of Acts, it refers to a mob of people who are gathered together, same word, to oppose the Christians that they're fighting against. So when Jesus said, I will build my church in Matthew 16, 18, he wasn't describing the church in its normal English usage, the way we think of a church, an organization of buildings, offices, services, activities for the congregation, all that. That's not what he was talking about. He was implying a fellowship of believers. That's why the church is essential. You can't have the church if you don't have a gathering of believers. Watching church in your home is not church. It may benefit you. It may help you if you're, you know, you can't make it out to church. If you're sick or whatever, that's fine. But we always want to be careful of not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Why? Because that's what the church is. You can't take away the gathering of believers from the church. Or it's not a church. And so it's, it's very clear that, that Christ here, um, the word ecclesia, is not a church in the denominational sense, like Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian. It's not that. But it's a fellowship of all believers in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't identify it with any particular group that man will come up with. Speaking of different followings and denominations. But it embraces all who fit the Bible's qualifications. So when the biblical writers use this word ecclesia in the context involving God and his people, what are they doing? They are drawing attention to the overall or the ultimate purpose for which God calls us out. He doesn't just call us out just to come and sit in a chair and listen to someone pontificate on something. That's not what he's called us out to do. In a majority of scriptures, ecclesia is the whole of God's people, of which maybe a congregation or even a denomination or a corporate entity is part of that. But usually it refers to the universal church. It includes all the citizens, whether they be of Corinth or of Athens. And you can think of the military. The army has kind of illustrates this point for us. In the army, you have um, a division is part of the overall army, a division of troops. And the army has a lot of different divisions. And so it's a, it's a division of the greater army. And the army is in turn, if you think about it this way, something, part of something even greater, what? Our country, our nation, right? You not only have the army, you have the navy, you have the marines, you have the coast guard, you have air force, did I miss anybody? National guard, throw them in there. And so, ecclesia is really an analogy um, the nation of believers. You can think of it that way. It's greater than just a local church. And in the Bible, it's most often used in this sense. 
So my question for us this morning is simply this. If we as a group of Christ followers, those who have committed our lives to follow Christ, we've trusted him for our salvation, we became believers, we put our faith and trust in him, and we've seen him transform our lives by his glorious power, my question is this. What are we called out from and what are we called to? If you don't have those two things, then you're going to miss the purpose of the church. Well, over in 1 Peter, turn with me, if you will, over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, or chapter 2, excuse me. 1 Peter 2, and it's, it's interesting how the Bible just shows us clearly the answer to these questions. 1 Peter chapter 2, all the way near the back of your Bible. <clears throat> he says there... In verse 9, he's talking about the people of God. He's talking about those whom God has saved. He's talking about the church in a religious sense. You could say that. He says in verse 9, But you are a chosen race. Look at this. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him What's it say? Who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's what the church of Christ is. It's a group of people who've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's not a trip you can make on your own. It requires him to call you out. He is instrumental in our salvation. So we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Think about those, those two images, darkness and marvelous light. I mean, I don't think you could find two images that provide a, a starker contrast. I mean, that's something you can't miss. It's not like, oh, uh, they kind of look alike. You know, I'm kind of colorblind, so sometimes, you know, greens look white and blues look green. And, you know, so people say, oh, that's a lighter shade. I said, it looks gray to me. I don't know. You know, it's not that you can't see color. I can see color. But sometimes with the shading of those colors, they're so close. Well, we're not talking about something that's close here. We're talking black and white. Stark contrast, darkness, and marvelous light, he says. They are complete polar opposites. When you look it up in the dictionary, darkness is defined, I thought this was so interesting, as the total or near absence of light. Listen to that. Darkness is the total or near absence of light. That's what God calls us out of. He calls us out of darkness. I think it's interesting because Jesus himself said, I am what? The light of the world. I am the light of the world. I have pierced the darkness. I have invaded the darkness. I have driven the darkness away. 
And he describes the church as the following in Matthew 5.14, pretty clearly. He says, you are the light of what? Of the world. So not only is Christ the light of the world, but as Christ's followers, he says, now you, in turn, are the light of the world. And he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. If you've ever driven somewhere at night on the freeway, out in the middle of nowhere, no lights, you know, you can see this when you drive to, if you go to Idaho and you go through Reno, you know, you're driving, driving, it's all dark, it's dark, and all of a sudden you see this glow off in the darkness. Or when you approach Las Vegas, is another example. You see this glow in the air, it's like, wow, what is that? Well, that's the city lights. You can't hide it. It can't be hidden. So the Bible says that as the church, we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And unfortunately, today we live in a culture, a society that is really the living testimony. Turn over to Romans 1. I thought Ken was going to read this first thing, so I thought, oh good, I won't have to read it, but he went somewhere else. So I thought, okay, well we got to read this. This is the whole context of the point here this morning. Romans 1. And I'll read that in a couple minutes, but it's, it's important for us to understand that God clearly tells us in his, in his scripture that, you know what, the church should not be like the society in which it lives. We're not supposed to be culturally relevant. We're not supposed to be like the world. We're not supposed to create a time here on Sunday morning where unbelievers feel welcome. They should feel a little uneasy. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Christ, I pray that you feel uneasy in your heart. Because the truth of the matter is is that you're lost and you're on your way to hell. And the only truth that can save you from that ultimate eternal destiny is the truth of the gospel, which says you need to come to Christ. You need to look to Christ. Stop playing games with your religion. Stop trying to clean up your own mess. And honestly and openly acknowledge Christ as your Lord and Savior and trust in him and him alone. If you do that, if you express that to him, he will save you. He will transform you. So we're talking mainly to the church this morning. I think if I had a subtitle for this message, the church defined, called out of what to what, the subtitle would be, clean up your act. Clean up your act, church. The church is a mess today. It's a mess. The average modern-day church is suffering what I would call an identity crisis. They don't know who they are anymore. They've compromised so much in so many different directions, they don't know who they are. They've forgotten, they've lost their original calling as 1 Peter states, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, which means set apart, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, our current society is completely hostile to the church being different, to being 
holy. It doesn't want that. It wants a church that just kind of sits there and does nothing and just, you know, is nice to look at. Doesn't ruffle any feathers. And we have seen the rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century and it's overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, concerning marriage, concerning human sexuality, concerning the church. And unfortunately, it's left so many people, including Christians, polarized, confused, dazed in the wake of immorality in which we live. How dare you speak out against it, is the message we hear. You're just not tolerant. Who do you think you are, you self-righteous? And the tirade goes on and on and on. And so the church has been dumbed down. It's been muzzled out of fear. Never in America could I have ever in my wildest imagination think that a day would come when the United States government forbids churches to meet. I mean, who would have called that? Who would have said, oh, sure. No, this is what? The land of the free, the home of the brave. No. I mean, the wheels are falling off the cart, folks. And it's happening before our eyes. The sexual revolution of the 1960s, to give you a little time frame here of where we're going with this, it really emerged partly from our own culture shifting of views of right and wrong. They, they blurred that line. It was called the moral revolution. It's like, you're not going to tell us what we can do. We're going to do whatever we want. And I think, I see at least four developments in the 20th century, really 21st century, that, or the 20th century, that contributed to the, the moral revolution, all this perversiveness that has, we live with now. And it can really account for the society being so hostile in their attitude toward Christian beliefs, especially when it comes to marriage, especially when it comes to human sexuality. They just want us to shut up and not say anything. But that's not where, remember, we're called out of that. We were called out of that into his marvelous light. And I think there's several reasons for this. I think first, the rise of urbanization helped remove the social check against premarital and extramarital affairs and things like that. I mean, when you take a bunch of people and you put them in a densely populated area with apartments and all this kind of things, there's a greater chance for illicit relationships among those people versus, you know, you, you live out on your, your 50 acres of land and there's nobody around. <laughs> you get the idea? That has added to the immorality. So urbanization hasn't helped. Secondly, I think the whole science of contraceptive technology has increased to the point where basically it, it allows for consequence-free sexual activity in our society today. I mean, it used to be, wow, you would, you would save yourself for marriage because you were afraid, wow, you, you could possibly get pregnant out of wedlock. It doesn't matter anymore, folks. I mean, science has come to a point where they can, they can take care of that real quick. 
And even if you still do get pregnant, it's so far and wide abortion, you just go have an abortion. It's no big deal to the average person. Thirdly, I think laws have restricted certain sexual behaviors and, and, and conduct in the past. They've all been overturned. They've all been overturned. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of weird. You used to be able to, I mean, you could watch TV and, you know, they couldn't even show a bathroom. Like a literal bathroom, even if it was a sink on TV because I was, wow, that was untoward. You would never show that. I mean, think of how that compares to what's being seen today on just regular TV. I mean, you don't even have to have HBO and all that, that, that garbage. It's, it's right there for you to watch. So they've thrown all that stuff out. Fourthly, I think a lot of it lays right here with the church because Christianity lost a considerable share of cultural influence. See, there's a difference between being culturally relevant and having cultural influence. Do we want to influence this culture? Yes, we want to influence it for Christ. I don't really care about being relevant. Why? Because the culture is filled with darkness. I mean, you have to understand it. You have to understand where they're coming from. But I want to influence. I want to be a church that influences the darkness. And somewhere along the line, the church has lost its saltiness, if you will. The light has grown dim. And we become more likely just to blend into the current flavor of society which is completely dominated by sinful, lustful desires. And so as a result, there's fewer people today who understand and even hold to Christian convictions, including those related to sexual morality. Well, what is sexuality? I mean, if we're going to define things, let's define sexuality. Let's define marriage. Because as a church, we have to have a proper understanding to be different because the world has a completely different view. And, and so many people within the church don't have a clear definition of sexuality. If you ask them, they probably blush and run away. Or they take their cues from recent academic studies and campaigns and cultural norms and the brainwashing of our children. Well, Christians are not to find their information in those places. Would you agree? Where are we supposed to go? We're, we're supposed to follow the Bible. We're called Christians. This is God's word. We're, we're supposed to follow what scripture indicates is right and wrong. Now, the Bible does not provide a succinct definition of sexuality. It just doesn't. But it does provide, I would say this, a robust framework for one. And from this framework, we can define sexuality as the basis of the desire for male and female to be united in a one flesh flesh union called marriage. Such a union is physical, it's relational, it's exclusive, and it's permanent. That's what marriage is defined as In the scriptures, God intended for sexuality to draw people together in marriage, not merely for their sexual pleasure. So we have to understand what the Bible teaches about the nature 
and about the purpose of marriage, that's essential to the biblical understanding of sexuality. Well, what does the Bible teach on marriage? Well, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you can read that on your own. I'm just going to quote some of it today. Verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and what? Female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Not a bad deal. Just do what I say, and you'll have dominion over everything. See, the first account of marriage in Scripture provides us four principles that frame and inform all subsequent biblical understanding and reflection on marriage. First of all, that marriage is permanent. Marriage is permanent. It's given in Scripture the illustration, a man and woman leave their families of origin and what? Are united in a lifelong relationship. Now, God gives us grace When the partner walks out and maybe we need to get remarried, whatever, God gives us grace. I'm not here to condemn those of you who've gone through the horrible thing of divorce and all that. What I'm trying to say is the intent of marriage originally was permanent. Secondly, it was exclusive. It was exclusive. It was man and woman. I know many of you love your dogs. You love your pets. You can't marry your dog. Or at least you couldn't. You probably can today. Matter of fact, you could probably call yourself a dog today. Nobody would okay, okay, yeah, that's fine. Kind of feel like I'm a cat today or a dog. I mean, that's the society we live in. It's crazy. So marriage is exclusive. Thirdly, it's not only permanent and exclusive, it's a sacred covenant that God has provided for us to enter into as male and female, for life. And fourthly, sexual differentiation is part of God's plan for marriage. It wouldn't make any sense otherwise. If God created Adam and then he created another Adam and said, okay, go and multiply, guess what? It ain't going to work. It's not going to happen. So it's part of God's plan for marriage, male and female. God did not create a bunch of androgynous beings. He created two complementary, biologically and genetically sexed individuals, male and female. And today we live in a world that for the most part has departed. They've turned their back on. They've run away from God's definition, not only of the church, but also of human sexuality and of marriage. And I would say, for the most part, morality. They don't care what God says anymore. Although sexuality is supposed to lead men and women to unite in this glorious relationship that's permanent, exclusive, one flesh union of marriage, that truth is often denied. It's suppressed. It's disobeyed. Well, marriage can be whatever you want it to be today. Departures from God's design for marriage include things like homosexuality, same-sex marriage. I would throw in there even transgenderism. So what does the Bible say about these things? I mean, it's important for us as a church to understand this, right? I mean, this is like everyday stuff. You turn on the news, you hear about this constantly. 
And, I, and I'll say this, it's not the majority of people that are holding to these views, it's a minority. But because the church has grown so timid to speak out, guess what's happening? The minority's ruling the majority. Today we live in a culture, a society that is the living testimony of Romans 1. Look at Romans 1, verse 18. I mean, this is like reading the newspaper. Romans 1, verse 18. And listen to these words prayerfully as I read this rather lengthy text of Scripture. He says in verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That includes all of this. And unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. They put their fingers in their ears and they run the other way. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are, it says, without excuse. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. We see that today, don't we? They became fools. Verse 23, and they exchanged, playing a shell game with God, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals, and even the creepy things. I guess that's snakes. I don't know. Verse 24, Therefore God, look at this, gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to what? To impurity. To dishonoring of their own bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and they served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then he goes on in verse 26. He says, for this reason, because they're suppressing the truth, because they're, they're worshiping the creature rather than the creator, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Not honorable passions. These are not passions that we need to lift up and exalt. These are honor- dishonorable. This is something you want to hide in the closet. Sorry for the pun, but that's exactly the way it was for so many years. (laughs) For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Contrary, it doesn't make sense. Verse 27, and the men likewise gave up their natural relations with women. That's the way God created it, men and women, male and female. And they were consumed, the men were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts. Just listen to the words that he uses to describe what we're talking about here. Shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Not being exalted by any means. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, here's another phase. This is where we're we're at in our society today. I think this is where we're at in our country today. God gave them up to a debased mind. 
to do what ought not to be done. Almost like no conscience. All you got to do is watch the news. You see people going up to other human beings, raping them, beating them, taking their goods. And other people just sit there and watch. It's, it's crazy. We live in a crazy, sick world. It's gotten to this point. People can break into stores and steal whatever they want, and police don't do anything. They're not allowed to do anything. It says, since they did not acknowledge God, God gave them to do debased mind to do what not ought to be done. And then it tells us what this is. Paul gives us the picture. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, all manner of evil, covetousness, malice. It says they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. I mean, you look at what goes on in Chicago and it should break your heart. Or in LA or in any big city, D.C., The murder rate is through the roof. People are suffering. Why? Because of evil. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Look at this one, inventors of evil. I mean, it used to be, you know, something like a Playboy magazine was, wow, that was really bad. That's nothing. That's like on the equivalent of a, of a Victoria's Secret catalog today. It really is. It's gotten so sick and so depraved out there. It says, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, Heartless, ruthless. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. This is a blight on society. This shouldn't be tolerated, is what the scripture says. They not only do them, but look at what they do. They give approval to those who practice them. This is the culture. This is the society that we've been called out of. And in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. God doesn't have to, oh, I'm sorry, i got to judge you. No, this kind of behavior deserves God's judgment. And it demands that the church stand up and speak out against such behavior. But where is the church? It's asleep in the light, as Keith Green would say. Most church people get out of, struggle to get out of bed on Sunday morning just to get through, through a message. Try to maybe fit it in their weekly schedule. Why? Because the church is no longer a priority in the society in which we live. Think of it this way. I, I've explained it this way before. But the church in society early on in our country was really the hub of society. Okay, by hub, think of a, of a uh, bicycle wheel. Okay, you have a hub, right, in the middle. That's the strength 
really the wheel that, you know, that's where all the weight goes, everything. And, and then you have all these spokes, right, going out, and then you have a rim around the outside and a tire. Well, the church used to be the hub, the center of everything that happened in society. If you had any kind of a cultural meeting, a society meeting, it happened in the local church. And what the world has done and what the church has let it do is it said, you know what, no, you're no longer the hub of society. Matter of fact, we don't even want you to be one of the spokes (laughs) on the wheel anymore. You're not allowed to do that anymore. We want you just to shut up and leave us alone. The Apostle Paul explains that humanity has rejected God. They've exchanged the truth about him and the things that he created. They exchanged all that for a lie. And the lie basically comes from the liar, who is not God, because God does not lie. It comes from Satan. We need to be aware of these things. It says that he, he describes the sinful exchange men and women have made. And, and Paul uses a word there for unnatural. Against nature. You know, sometimes when you're building something, you're putting things together, parts go together in a certain way. And sometimes if you don't follow the directions, you try to, you're putting a square, square peg in a round hole. It doesn't fit, and you get frustrated. Homosexuality is unnatural because it's a departure from God's design for sexuality. It's a departure from God's design for sexuality. And according to the passage here, homosexuality is also a consequence of humanity suppressing God's truth and refusing to honor him as their creator. It's a consequence. That's why we live in the world in which we live in today. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such an important verse because it doesn't just focus on homosexuality. (laughs) It focuses on all kinds of sin. The one thing we don't want to be, we don't want to be a church that exalts the sin of homosexuality above all other sins, because it's not. Some teach that Jesus, well, he didn't really teach on homosexuality, so it must be okay. But I would beg to differ. I would say that the evidence strongly suggests that he would not affirm same-sex marriage, same-sex relations today. I don't believe our Lord would. And people always say, well, Jesus never condemned homosexuality. Well, I believe that argument is flawed in three ways. 
First of all, the argument assumes that Jesus' words are more authoritative than the rest of the Bible. You say, say what, Pastor? Yeah, you heard me right. It assumes that Jesus' words in Scripture are more authoritative than the rest of the Bible. I would say that's not true. That's not true. That's the reason why we're in the mess we're in, really. Blame it on the red-letter Bible. (laughs) I mean, there are people out there that actually, I've heard them tell me, well, you know, Pastor, I only read the letters in red. What are you talking about? Well, those are the words of Jesus. No, we, we do not hold to that kind of theology when it comes to Scripture. We don't believe that as Christians. We believe 2 Timothy 3.16 when it says all, all, all Scripture is inspired by God, including the words of Jesus. Those are all of God's words. Secondly, the argument fails to say that, well, Jesus didn't address homosexuality. It fails to realize that by affirming the truthfulness of the Old Testament, which Jesus did time and time again, he automatically condemned homosexuality. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law. What did the law say? The law said homosexuality was a sin. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to what? To fulfill it. To fulfill it. So that argument doesn't hold up when you're talking with people. When Jesus upheld the Old Testament, he was automatically condemning the sin of homosexuality. Let me explain it this way. You know, you you could probably find somebody out there that would say, you know what, I believe President Biden is pro-slavery. He's pro-slavery. And you would say, why? That's crazy. What are you talking about? Why would you say such a thing about our president? Well, you know what, I did some research, and of all his speeches that the president has given... In not one speech did he directly and affirmly speak out against slavery. Therefore, he's pro-slavery. And you say, well, that, would that be a logical conclusion? No. You, you wouldn't say that. Um, at his inauguration, the president swore to uphold the Constitution of the United States. And guess what? The Constitution of the United States, what's it do? It prohibits slavery. Therefore, by swearing to uphold the Constitution, he was saying, I'm going to uphold all the laws, including laws against slavery. Now, unfortunately, this illustration breaks down rather quickly with our current administration, but we're not going to go there. (laughs) At least not yet. See, when Jesus upheld the Old Testament, he was automatically condemning homosexuality. Thirdly, By upholding God's plan for sexuality, Jesus condemned homosexuality. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees tried to trick Jesus. You remember that? And they were questioning him on the issue of divorce and remarriage. And, oh, this guy got married and married. Who's going to be his wife in heaven? All this stuff. And Jesus answered by going back to God's original plan for human sexuality, which is what? Sex is reserved for a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. 
So he upheld it that way. Yeah, it's true that Jesus never really directly mentions the word homosexuality. He never said, you shall not commit homosexuality. You're not going to find that in Jesus' words in red in the Bible. But guess what? Jesus never said, you should not commit incest. Jesus never said, you should not commit bestiality or pedophilia or whatever. Was he pro those things just because he didn't speak out against it? Of course not. So that argument does not hold up. By upholding God's pattern for sexuality, a man and a woman in a marriage relationship, Jesus automatically condemns any deviation from that pattern. Any deviation, not just homosexuality. And he quotes specifically from Genesis 1.24, indicates that he affirms the Old Testament vision for marriage and sexuality as a union between one male and one female, for one lifetime. So that's what the Bible has to say about marriage. But we can't stop there because they've invented this other thing called transgenderism. Transgenderism. Um, it's another departure, really, from God's design for sexuality. And it's the idea that holds that sex refers to the physical body including the reproductive system, while gender refers to a person's inner perception of themselves or their body. In other words, their identification of male or female. So just because you're a male physically, you can identify as a female. Makes perfect sense, right? Confused. Now, I'm not here to belittle this because I believe it is not a, uh, there's something wrong here, okay? Men who desire and want to be women, there's something awry. There's a problem. It needs to be addressed. Spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, we're not to make light of this, okay? We're not to mock this, but in transgender ideology, subjective feelings and personal experience supersede your own biology. They supersede your own anatomy, and sex is basically reduced to a social construct. And this is inconsistent with what we know the Bible to teach when it comes to human sexuality, when God created sexual differentiation between male and female, that was God's design. And guess what? The last time I checked in Genesis, after he created everything, what did he say? It was very good. Very good. The Bible says God made them male from the beginning, male and female. God made them from the beginning, male and female. He didn't make them male, female, uh, question mark. He didn't do that. <laughs> male and female, pretty, pretty straightforward. God has determined how many sexes there are. There are two. There's not three, there's not four, there's not five. There's two, male and female. 
Moreover, Jesus' incarnation and embodiment after his resurrection imply that his physical body and soul are inseparable. And some Christians should see their created bodies as part of God's good creation, including the fact that you're male or female. One's not greater than the other. They're equal. In the eyes of God, they should be equal in our eyes. But God created them different. But he did create them male and female. Now, Christians throughout church history have upheld this. I mean... Going back as far as 2,000 years, marriage and sexuality has been a discussion within the church. The early church writers affirmed that marriage is the only appropriate context for sexual intimacy. Theologians such as Tertullian and Augustine reflected deeply on marriage and sexuality and, and their writings provide us valuable insight Even after the Reformation, both Protestants and Roman Catholics remain committed. They remain committed to what the Bible taught about marriage and human sexuality. Martin Luther is quoted as saying this, There is no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. Hopefully those of you who are married would say amen to that, whether your marriage is good or bad. But unfortunately, Christians today in our modern church have began to waffle on this. Now, there's a lot of Christians who remain committed to biblical teaching on marriage and sexuality, even today. But they've been muzzled. They're unwilling to speak out. I mean, only at the height of the sexual revolution did many of the mainland, mainline Protestant churches and, and, and other churches, uh, such as the Episcopalian Church, the, the uh, USA Presbyterian Church, they changed their view on homosexuality. There's a striking correlation I see between rejecting the Bible. That was the first battle they, they went after. They wouldn't accept God's word as the authoritative word. And once they got that out of the way, then what? You can accept anything you want. (laughs) Doesn't matter what the Bible says, because that's no authority in our lives. Denominations shown today that continue to believe the Bible's trustworthiness, and Christians that believe the Bible's trustworthiness and know what it says about their faith and their God, remain committed to the church's historical teaching on Sexuality and marriage. Today, unfortunately, a biblical understanding of sexuality is being ridiculed. We're told we're outdated. It's also being viewed as dangerous if you have that view. You're being pinpointed by many in our government, by higher education, by the media. You can't say those things. And threats against the churches and organizations guided by insincere or sincere religious convictions are becoming more prevalent, unfortunately. Political, legal pressure against Christians working in areas such as weddings, baking cakes for weddings. We've seen all this play out. They continue to to come up 
issues that continue to come up. In Canada, they just passed a bill, C4. It passed through the House and the Senate without any opposition whatsoever. Not a single dissenting vote cast against this bill by any conservative in their parties. Bill C-4 directly comes against parents and counselors who would seek to offer biblical counsel with respect to sexually to sexual immorality and gender. It goes on, and it will criminalize, among other things, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy, promoting or advertising conversion therapy. Conversion therapy is taking someone who is in a sexually immoral situation and and counseling them to get out of it. (laughs) You put it that way. It also goes on, it says... Heterosexuality, cisgender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. And then it says it's a myth. They said it's a myth. Anyone, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including by providing conversion therapy to that other person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for the term of not more than five years. Similarly, everyone who knowingly promotes and advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment of a term of not more than two years. Now, this isn't here in our country. This is in Canada. In our own country, we're ahead of this. We've already been there, done that in California back in 2012. California passed Senate Bill 1172, banning gay conversion along with New York, New Jersey, and Nevada. This is nothing new. And in doing this, the California government sought to prohibit any correction of an unbiblical view of sexual identity. On August 18, 2020, the Democratic Party declared at the National Convention that it would ban harmful conversion therapy practices. The Obama administration appointed more than 250 LGBTQ plus blah, 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 people to serve in the government. Unfortunately, the Biden administration has promised to increase that number. They're they're going full-blown down this road, and they've done so. They've done so thus far. Having said that... (laughs) My personal opinion is this. I believe this current administration in our government is one of the most ungodly administrations that we've ever had in the, con- in the history of our country. Yeah, I said it. The Biden administration is one of the most ungodly administrations that we've ever had in this country as our leaders. This is not a matter of playing politics this is not a political opinion. It's, it's, it's a moral opinion, a biblically moral opinion. I don't care how many masses our president goes to. I don't care how many rosaries he recites. 
when you affirm anything that is in complete opposition to what God affirms in his word, you are ungodly and you are a reprobate, according to scripture. And when you can continue to affirm the mass killing of innocent children through the means of abortion to a degree that we have never seen before, And when you can disregard God's standards and morality when it comes to marriage and transgenderism, I'm sorry, but you have been given over, as the scripture says, to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And we should call upon our president and vice president and those in leadership over us to repent and to turn to Christ. That is their only hope, beloved. That's the only hope any of us have. Biblical beliefs about marriage, gender, and sexuality are called intolerant. And they're called intolerant in an effort to drive Christians out of the public square. It's time the church stands up and says, no more. We're not going to put up with this. Ironically, these efforts in the name of tolerance have resulted in increased intolerance from secularists toward Christians who want to live lives peaceably and in accordance with their deeply held religious beliefs. I remember what the mayor said to me after I prayed a prayer at the city council. He said, well, we're, we're open to all faiths and all views, and we tolerate everybody, but we will not intolerate that. We won't tolerate it. And I thought, wow, it's like doublespeak. Marriage and sexuality are deeply personal topics. I understand that. But the Christian must begin to speak the truth about them. And we have to speak it with conviction, but we also have to speak it with love and grace. We're not here to condemn a bunch of of people. The word of God does that already. We're here to see their souls saved. Because the gospel, last time I checked, is good news for all people. Including those who struggle with their sexuality. Including those who experience unwanted same-sex attraction at times. The Bible's teaching on sexuality is something that we all need to hear. But it's not all we need to hear. God's design for sexuality is is not the Bible's central focus. Thank God. (laughs) Rather, it's about salvation. It's about salvation in Christ. The redemption that he has offered us and secured us from this broken system that we call the world. And also the transformation guaranteed to us when we follow him, when we commit our lives to Christ. He guarantees that he will transform us, that he will call us out of this darkness into his marvelous light. That's the news that the church should be proclaiming. This is the good news And we need to proclaim it with clarity. We need to proclaim it with hope. We need to proclaim it affirming God's design for humanity while also proclaiming God's faithfulness to rescue us from our sin. Because we all need rescue. Amen? And the gospel has the power to save. This salvation includes a transformation of identity. But truth and love must frame a biblical, faithful response to the moral revolution that has upended our culture's understanding of sexuality. We have to uphold the teaching and defend the Bible 
biblical truths in a loving manner. It's not always easy, but it's necessary for the witness of the church, the flourishing of individuals, and the good of society. I earlier read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, but I'm going to continue to read, or 9 to 10, but I want to continue to read verse 11 this time because it's important for the church to hear lest we feel too high and mighty about our own self-righteousness. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, we like to stop there, don't we, like I did. But what's it say? In verse 11, he says, you know what? And such were some of you. Whoa. Whoa, Paul. Really? The next phrase is beautiful, that word. I love the buts of scripture. I always say that. (laughs) But you were washed. Speaking to believers, you were washed. You were sanctified, which means set apart. You were justified. You were declared righteous in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. See, praise God that there is hope for every sinner at the cross. Right? I mean, yeah, we live in a sick society.